Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I'm Erwin Kishner, Herrick's executive chairman, and I want to thank you for joining us. Hi, this is Ron Levine. Thank you for joining our corporate partner, Morris DeFeo, and me for this discussion of risk management pointers when buying or investing in a business. Morris heads up Herrick's corporate practice and will be talking about how to structure the purchase, assuming you want to go ahead with a purchase of the business. I'm a litigator as well as our firm's general counsel. I concentrate in consumer class actions and product liability litigations. I'm often consulted when clients are considering purchasing a company and are engaged in due diligence. If you're involved in thinking about acquiring or merely investing in a company, especially one which manufactures consumer products, you should probe well beyond the company's balance sheet to avoid stepping into a potential legal sinkhole. In order to uncover lurking landmines, it's essential to ask some very hard questions. More specifically, I call this looking carefully at the company's three P's. Those are processes, philosophy, and protections. By way of example, I'm going to assume you're considering investing in or purchasing a food or beverage company. The same approach would apply to any type of business, but I'm going to focus my brief remarks on a food and beverage industry by way of an example. The first P on my list is processes. Manufacturers have been subject to hundreds of class actions, claims, and lawsuits in recent years. A litigation can arise for many reasons, including, say, in my example, the sale of contaminated goods, or from claims concerning the benefits of a product. We know about claims such as healthy or all-natural that have provoked litigation. For example, if a company claims that its products are healthy, it's critically important that the manufacturer substantiate that the ingredients meet the FDA definition for healthy. If not, the company could be faced with a claim that the product was mislabeled. Additionally, a company can be exposed to serious liability claims if its ingredients are dangerous. Potential buyers should conduct a thorough investigation of a product's ingredients and quality controls as part of its due diligence. I have three questions I would suggest a potential purchaser explore when evaluating a target company's processes. My first question would be, is the company up to date on the changing landscape of regulations? Any manufacturer involved in labeling a product must be on top of constantly evolving regulations. Here for food or beverages would be FDA, Department of Agriculture, and state and local authorities. As we know, there are many regulatory bodies that regulate many, many different products. My second question would be, is the company carefully vetting the claims it's making in its advertising? In the food and beverage world, words such as natural and healthy would not be used unless the company had studied the regulations that might apply and knows how courts are interpreting those words. We would hope the company is doing its homework. 
My third question would be, does the company push the envelope when advertising its products? If a company engages in overselling the product, it's what we call puffery. It could be courting trouble. So I'd be looking at how hard does the company push its sales in advertising. A company could be driving sales with all kinds of grandiose claims, but additional profit could be eaten up down the road if it has to defend claims by private plaintiffs or by a government body such as the Federal Trade Commission. This is true not only in the food and beverage world, but for any type of product. Now, my second P on my list is philosophy. In addition to investigating the target company's quality controls, buyers should size up the management's philosophy. Some companies are only one step from its founding, say in the kitchen stove or in a garage. Sometimes founders believe, especially in the food and beverage world, that the brew they dreamed up is the perfect cure for the common cold or for obesity. This rise in social media has created a fertile soil for selling dreams of quick health fixes. And we see many, many promotions throughout Facebook, Twitter, etc., in which companies are out claiming they found the next great cure. Hundreds of thousands of potential consumers could be lured into buying useless, relatively inexpensive products, which they are led to believe will replace a pricey drug, but could be nothing more than snake oil. Now, it is time-consuming and expensive to develop scientific support for claims, but it's essential to do that if you're going to go down that road. You must be able to back up claims with facts and data. So a potential purchaser or investor should be very careful when looking at a company which is making wild, unsubstantiated claims about its products. Again, you could be facing legal action, not only from federal agencies, but from competitors and even from social activists, which could have serious adverse consequences for the company's bottom line. My third and final P is protections. It's critical for any buyer or investor to assess past, present, or future claims against a target company. The risks are many. There could be personal injury claims, consumer fraud actions, recalls, or even government investigations, all which can cost money. Now, again, social media is a good place to look for um, claims that are lurking out there. Plaintiff's lawyers often use social media to troll for clients and and talk about claims which attract potential plaintiffs. They may be setting up websites trying to lure in clients. You can look on social media as well and see if there are potential claims lurking against the company. So even if there aren't any current claims against the company, it's important to study what's going on because there could be claims coming down the road. In addition to commercial liability insurance, it's important to double check for other types of insurance or to obtain it, such as cybersecurity insurance, 
false advertising, and product liability. Uh, I'd also be looking at suppliers and, and the contracts with those suppliers to see whether or not they added the company as an additional insured. While there may be significant opportunity to profit, any buyer must take the time to get to know the company's processes, philosophy, and protections. This due diligence on the three P's will and hopefully will lead the investor to a fourth P, peace of mind. Now, assuming the client wants to forge ahead and is comfortable with this analysis with my three P's, how should the purchaser structure the purchase to provide added peace of mind? Morris will now provide some suggestions from his long experience in structuring transactions, which will hopefully provide additional peace of mind. Morris? Thanks, Ron. My name is Morris DeFeo, and I'm a partner in and chair of our corporate department. With the backdrop provided by Ron, I'm going to touch briefly on what all of this means for a transactional lawyer advising a client in negotiating and structuring a potential acquisition. The basic well-recognized principle is that a purchaser of business assets has no liability for the seller's debts or other obligations unless they are expressly assumed. However, it is also well known that there are several exceptions to this basic principle, which to some extent vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, the most prominent of which is the de facto merger doctrine. Several years ago, a panel working under the auspices of the ABA wrote a memorandum that identified factors present in a transaction that lawyers believe are likely to increase successor liability risk. These include the likelihood that the buyer will encounter so-called long-tail claims, like product liability, environmental, tax, employment, health and safety, or data breach claims with respect to the purchase business. Uh, it is often the case that long-tail claims are the primary source of successor liability, by the way. Another factor is the seller's dissolution and liquidation soon after the transaction is closed. Uh, successor liability tends to be highest where the seller sells all or substantially all of its assets and then immediately dissolves. It's an important indication, for example, that in the minds of a court, it's effectively nothing more than a de facto merger between the seller and the buyer. Another factor is that the sellers receive equity in the buyer or other securities as opposed to being cashed out, or that the buyer will simply continue the business with little change, or that the buyer knew or should have known of contingent claims and failed really to make any adequate provision, either through insurance or otherwise. Transactional lawyers have distilled from these cases these factors, which we believe tend more towards a potential finding of successor liability. So recognizing the exceptions that courts have embraced and the factors above, as well as the trend over the past 25 plus years in which we've seen more parties bring more claims about successor liability, transactional lawyers have embraced a number of strategies that we believe help mitigate a finding of successor liability. First, and perhaps most importantly, and something to which Ron alluded, is thorough due diligence of business, financial, and legal and regulatory matters. It may not be the most glamorous part of doing a deal, but it often is the most useful. But what's more important is to make sure that the due diligence plan and the execution of that plan are customized to address 
the red flags that are specific to the facts and circumstances of the seller, its operations, and the nature of its assets and liabilities. The next, of course, is deal structure. Transactional lawyers have long recognized the importance of structuring a deal as an asset acquisition rather than an equity transaction. In general, if you are acquiring all or a controlling interest of a company through the acquisition of its equity, you're stuck pretty much with whatever that company has in the way of liabilities. However, using an asset purchase approach is a plausible way to avoid the assumption of unwanted liabilities and to obtain specific indemnities to backstop this. Other structuring and deal terms besides using asset acquisitions versus an equity transaction include the use of a newly formed acquisition subsidiary to acquire these assets. Again, looking back at the factors that tend towards the finding of successor liability, paying the deal consideration in cash rather than in stock of the buyer or other securities, making a portion of the purchase price deferred or contingent on future events, which includes, of course, earnout structures. It's kind of axiomatic, but clearly identifying which liabilities we wish to assume and those which we wish to exclude, which are really only possible when you do thorough diligence. Specific representations and warranties, specific indemnity mechanisms, including, for example, special indemnities for areas of concern, or the use of caps and baskets for only limited things and the non-use of those for areas where we have specific concern. Having an extended period of time to bring claims for breaches of reps and warranties. And then something that people tend to overlook as two other factors, but requiring the seller at closing to make adequate provision for creditors or other claimants, or actually paying consideration directly to those parties to eliminate those debts and obligations. And then requiring the seller to remain in business for some period of time after the acquisition so that there is a viable entity left behind on the seller side that can answer claims and also have adequate resources to pay those claims. Another way of addressing these kinds of possibilities is to look towards adjustments of the purchase price to ensure that any liabilities, obligations, or debts are accounted for. This includes working capital adjustments and purchase price adjustments based on the amount of available cash at closing, as well as the amount of debts and transaction expenses that will be in place at the time of closing. In either one of these scenarios, it's very customary to see that whatever the purchase price is, it is otherwise adjusted either at closing or sometimes after closing to account for discrepancies in these amounts. But perhaps one of the most important and first things that a transactional lawyer needs to do when approached by a client that is interested in proceeding towards a transaction is to ensure that the client understands that there is no silver bullet, that there is no absolute certainty that even taking all of these steps will insulate the buyer from liability. But doing some of the things that we've talked about above can certainly help protect the buyer and mitigate the risk of successor liability being imposed. Thanks for allowing us to talk to you today. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional recordings, please visit us at www.herrick.com.